Today, I'm going to ask you to jump in the airplane with me. We're going to taxi down the runway. We're going to get up very, very high. And we're going to, from the great height up in an airplane, we can fly over this forest called Genesis. And there's a lot of things you can see when you're up high that you can't see when you're down low. For example, if you've ever walked through the bush, through a forest, uh, you, you can see the individual trees and, and stuff going on below the canopy, but it's amazing when you get up in a helicopter or an airplane, uh, the, the view up there is just awesome. It's just a totally different view. And so it's important that we, we jump in this airplane and get the big picture of Genesis because we're going to see God displaying his character everywhere here. Let me ask you this question, though. Why is it important to study the beginnings? Why is that important? Some people think history is boring. History is a subject that should never be studied. Shame on them who think that, by the way. History is his story, God's story. So carefully studying the, the history of something, particularly the beginnings of something, allows you to know the ultimate outcome before it even happens. So even if you've never read Revelation, for example the last book in your Bible, you're going to know kind of the outcome, what's going to come in Revelation when you study the beginnings in Genesis. So beginnings are important. Beginnings are very significant. They can reveal everything from the direction to purpose. It, it's going to reveal the methods and the motives. And this is why we ought to study the first book in the Bible. It's the foundation, really, for the entire Bible. It's the what is called the Book of Beginnings. Of course, we have, we have it in our English Bibles known as Genesis. So just allow me to introduce you to the Book of Genesis before the next upcoming weeks where we're going to kind of dive in and, and uh, we're going to land the airplane on the runway and we're going to walk through the bush and start analyzing and looking at individual trees. So this, uh, the, the Book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Here's the basic storyline in, in about the simplest form I can give you. I'll put it on the screen here for you. So in, in the first three chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it's, uh, of course, all about God, His doings. He's displaying His character. Uh, particularly, He's displaying His character in His creation. He creates the entire universe in six days. And by the way, that's a six literal 24-hour day. I know that's highly debated, but we'll show you why that is the case. And some, some say, uh, uh, how could God do it in only six days? Well, my answer to that is, what took God so long? You realize God could have done it in a second, in less than a second. He could have spoke the entire universe into existence. Well, anyway, we'll talk about that later. All right, so then God creates the first people, Adam and Eve. He brings them together. And God is the, is the, he's the first marriage celebrant, if you will. And so he marries off Adam and Eve, and we got the first home. Well, that didn't last too long. We have what's called the fall. Theologians call it the fall, the fall of mankind into sin is in Genesis chapter 3. And then, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but you've got all this amazing stuff in chapters 1 and 2. And then most of your Bibles covers chapter 3. Because we are currently, even now, thousands of years later, still in the, st the fall of mankind state. We're still looking for the redemption of our bodies and the, and the redemption, the, this new creation that is yet to come in the book of Genesis, or Revelation, sorry. 
But then you come to Genesis chapters 4 through 11, and that's covering a, a huge time span of going all the way from Adam, the first man, to the first patriarch known as Abraham. In chapter 12, actually, he's introduced. And so in, that, in those chapters, 4 through 11, you have two big events happening. Of course, the flood, a worldwide flood, and this event called the Tower of Babel. And then you come to chapters 12 through 50. <laughs> of course, that's most of the book of Genesis. And it's, it's focusing on a man named Abraham and, of course, his descendants, his, his family. So you have Abraham mentioned in chapters 12 to 25. Chapters 26 through 36 are focusing mainly on Jacob, uh, who, of course, is Abraham's grandson. And then you got chapters 37 to 50, and it's focusing on Jacob's, one of Jacob's sons, uh, by the name of Joseph. So this wonderful book is getting us all the way from creation to the start of the point of the Exodus. So, so God's people have been, have been built up in, a, in the country of Egypt, and God's going to lead them out of Egypt there in the book of Exodus. And so it's the Exodus that's going to finally launch God's people into God's land, the very land that God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So what are we going to do today? Well, we're, we're going to kind of look around the whole book, and uh, <clears throat> this isn't original with me. You've, you've probably seen various maybe have seen various charts on the book of Genesis. It's kind of dividing the book up into two parts, as you can see here. Uh, this, uh, so you got Genesis 1 through uh, 11. And so that first part there is, uh, is, is about God creating the world and the human race, and what happens with the human race. And so, of course, the main characters there would be Adam and Noah. So they're talked a lot about in those first 11 chapters. But then you got uh, the second part. The second section is taking up the rest of the book of Genesis, starting in chapter 12. And you think of it like this, a camera. If you've ever had, you ever seen a camera, the big zoom lens, you know, particularly the, the, the paparazzi, you know, they got these huge, massive cameras that are taking photos of, of uh, celebrities in, in all the places. And, and, and they, you know, they can get amazing shots with those huge zoom cameras, can't they? Or, or wildlife photographers get these days amazing photographs and video. And that's what's going on there. It's, it stops looking at the whole human race in those first 11 chapters, mainly Adam and Noah, and it's, it's zooming in of all the people of the earth, it zooms in on one family, one family, Abraham's family. Why is that? Why would God focus of all the people in the earth on one family? Well, because God chose a special people for himself here. He's redeeming uh, out of this world, and he's doing it, by the way, for his own glory. He's accomplishing his purposes through this one family. And so the main characters there, of course, are Abraham, Abraham's son Isaac, then Isaac's son, Jacob, and then one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. And then that completes the book of Genesis. That's about as simple as you can get. So obviously we don't have time to look through all of this wonderful book, 50 chapters, but I do want us to see the key lessons that we're intended to learn about God. See, God is displaying His character. He wants you to know something about Him. 
And what a blessing that he does this in narrative form for us. So in both parts of this book, we're going to consider the display of God's holiness as well as judgment on sin. But as we see judgment on sin, one thing you you notice about God is always look for His mercy. Always look for His mercy. When God brings judgment, look for His mercy. We, We also see His sovereignty and then... There's, there's a response that you and I should have as we see God's holiness and His judgment on sin and His mercy and His sovereignty. We must respond to God's character. So we'll look at that. So I believe this is what God intends for us to learn in this book. Number one, we see in chapters 1 through 11 that God displays His character through the world that He has created. He creates the world to display his character. And the Bible clearly does not have a lot to say about the, the, all those years before the Tower of Babel. God's left uh, a lot of history out of the Bible. Uh, but he has given us what he wants us to know. Obviously, there's other stuff that happened uh, that we may never know about. But what we do have is, is important, and we will study that, of course, so these are the most important things. So in this particular section, again, let me mention a few things here. The most important stories would include, of course, creation, then the fall of mankind, then the first murder. The, the sons of Adam and Eve, uh, Cain and Abel. Cain murders his brother Abel. That's the first murder. And there is significance. You can read about that even in, in Hebrews chapter 11. And then uh, number four, you have uh, Noah a righteous man, a preacher of righteousness, he's described, and then God's judgment through the flood, and then um, after that we have the Tower of Babel. And so that's, that's kind of the main events taking place in Genesis 1 through 11. So whenever you're reading or, or even if you're teaching these particular stories, please try to grasp the fundamental matters about God. Okay? So as you're reading or, or you're teaching your children, your grandchildren, or whoever it might be, God is, is displaying his character here. He wants you to know him. He is knowable to a certain extent. And so I'll just give you an example. The first uh, among these matters must certainly be that God is self-existent. He's self-existent. He's, in other words, he's not dependent upon you. He's not dependent upon me or, or anything else. Uh, some have said that God created the universe because he was lonely. He made people because he was lonely and he was, you know, he needed something. That's rubbish. God was just fine in the Trinity before he made the universe. The Trinity had perfect fellowship with one another. Uh, I mean, imagine God the Father saying, you know, I'm, you know, Jesus, you're just not enough for me. You know, the Holy Spirit, you're not enough. I need something else. That's ridiculous. So I'm going to create you. (laughs) Like, you're better than Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Wrong. No, he didn't need anything. He wouldn't be God if he needed anything else. And so nobody created God. He's self-existent. And it's just in the beginning, God. That's how the Bible starts. He's not dependent on you. And it's important to note, by the way, that the magnificence of God's creation is not the focus of Genesis, is it? There's only, like, mainly one chapter. (laughs) 
that talks about the magnificence of his creation. What is the focus? It's God. God's the focus. And so here's a warning. As, as you look at Genesis, and the entire Bible for that fact, is don't lose sight of God. There's this, as Romans 1 says, there's this tendency within us to worship the creation rather than the creator. Yes, as you said earlier, hummingbirds are amazing. But let's not forget the creator who made the hummingbird. So the next thing that we can learn about God here is that, number one, is that God is holy and He judges sin. God is holy and He judges sin. So the first place in Genesis where we clearly observe God's holiness, as, as well as His commitment to condemn those who sin against Him, is in chapter 3. So please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Here in Genesis 3, we encounter the very first sin. I hope you already know this, but God made Adam and Eve perfect. They were sinless in the beginning. And so, sadly though, they sinned by disobeying God. By the way, that's, that's a good definition of sin. Uh, as the Bible itself describes sin as a transgression against God's law. And so they, they transgressed, they broke God's law, they disobeyed because they went and ate of the fruit of, of only one tree, by the way. God said just one tree they couldn't eat from. All the rest they could, but they go and eat from the one. And in the process, they disobeyed God. And so we come to the end of the chapter, and we see God keeping his word here in Genesis 3. Look at verse 22. Because God said, as soon as you disobey, you will start dying in more than one way. But immediately their, their spirit died. But look at this. Genesis 3.22 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, that's an angel, a cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Bad news, isn't it? So God's commitment to good and right is continuing on chapter 4, 5, 6, into chapter 7, and we got the famous climax there in chapter 7, which is called the universal flood. Now many people know and, and are acquainted with the story of Noah's Ark, and you get some ridiculous-looking Noah's Ark's people's paintings and imaginations, don't you? But it often gets sentimentalized, doesn't it? Noah's Ark, you know, a cute, cuddly little boat, cute, cuddly little animals sticking their heads out the windows and stuff like that, right? And uh, you, you get all kinds of pictures and artwork and even toys. And, and all those things don't really accurately represent the true story. And so you, you have to understand the flood is one of the greatest judgments in the Bible. Th- this is not a pleasurable story to read. It was a horrible calamity. In fact, God wiped out almost the entire human race. 
And if you've ever read or ever watched that horrible new movie that came out recently, Noah, uh, <clears throat> there was not a stowaway on the ark. There were only eight people total. Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. That was it. Out of all the people on the earth, <laughs> they were the only ones that were saved. And so the, almost the entire human race was destroyed. Noah's ark is not some sentimental little toy floating in a bathtub. It's you know, we, there were real rising waters. This was not a warm bath. God said he covered the entire earth as an expression of his wrath against sin. That's why he did that. And, and if you don't believe me, look at chapter 8. Look in your Bibles, Genesis 8. I want you to see how God describes the very sinful people whom he destroyed in the flood. Genesis 8, verse 21. Actually, let's not read the first part. Look at the second part of Genesis 8, verse 21. Because God said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. One of the things that teaches us is the total depravity of mankind. I don't know if you can see that that total depravity is is taught in the Old Testament. Uh, Here's a question, though. What is total depravity, and why is this important for you to know? This is not just something for theologians to argue about. This is for every Christian to understand. And, and, and let me answer the, the why question first of all. The view that you and anybody else takes concerning sin and the effect that sin has on your human nature is incredibly important. Uh, the, the view that you take concerning salvation is going to be determined to a very large extent here by the view that you, you take concerning sin. How do you view sin? Well, how do you view the effect that sin has had on you as well as everyone else? Now, let me answer the, the, the what question, I hope. Uh, what is total depravity, you might ask? Well, it's, it just means that your nature, mankind's nature is corrupt, it's perverse, it is sinful throughout. Every part of your being has been affected by the fall of mankind. Every part of you. Your mind, your body, spirit, every part of you has been affected. It doesn't mean, by the way, that every sinner is as, is as bad as they could be or totally corrupt as it was, is possible for you to be by God's grace. Um, many, of us, many of us are not as bad as we could be, right? Praise God for that. The word, though, total, as you think about this, is used to indicate that the whole of man's being has been affected by sin. The corruption, by the way, extends to every part of us, so it would include your body as well as your soul. Sin has affected all of our faculties as well. So not only has it affected your mind, it's affected your will. And I don't know what you believe about how many parts of your body you have, but it's, it's affected all the parts of you. And so, if you're not a child of God, if you've never, in other words, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, 
I implore you to take some time and read through these first 11 chapters of Genesis. It'll help give you a good foundation for the Bible. You're going to find the message about God is displaying himself here. He's going to, you'll understand that God made you. God made you with, with meaning and purpose. Unfortunately, though, we have failed to live up to God's purpose. We failed. And uh, there's some good news, though. Even though we have failed, God has not. God continues to be faithful to us and merciful to us. And that's, that's the second point that Genesis teaches us, is that God is merciful. We failed, but God is merciful. And we, we can thank God that we not only find His holiness on display in these first 11 chapters, but we also find His mercy displayed. And I'll give you an example of this. Even, even back in Genesis 3, where it first mentions the fall of mankind, look at this. We have an example. While God is pronouncing judgment on this first sin here, He gives a glimmer of hope. There's, there is hope for our sinners. So notice here the fall of mankind, what God promises in Genesis 3, verse 15. Now this, this is a promise to the woman's offspring. So God gives a curse to Adam, he gives a curse to Eve, and he gave a curse to the serpent. But look, look at this, Genesis 3, 15. It says, I, this is God speaking, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. By the way, I hope you can see Jesus there. That, that's, a little, that's a little sight of what is to come. In Jesus, Jesus was the one who would crush Satan's head as he was dying on the cross, and he was buried, and he rose again. He crushed and destroyed the works of Satan in the process. So we see God's mercy, even there in Genesis chapter 3. I'll give you another example. Of course, another one of the great examples of God's judgment is the flood. Look at, look at chapter 9. After the, the judgment of the flood, God promised that he would remember the covenant that he had made with Noah as well as Noah's offspring. And right in the midst of wrath, I love this truth, in the midst of wrath, God remembers mercy. God remembers mercy. Okay? How dare people say they don't like the God of the Old Testament? There are people who say that. God doesn't change. Look at this. Genesis 9, verse 15. Verse 15, because he says, I will remember my covenant that is made between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, that's the rainbow in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Amen. Amen. So my friends, when you see the rainbow in the sky, and we, what a blessing, we see a lot of them, don't we? Every time you see that rainbow, remember God's mercy to you. Because you and I de deserve destruction. We deserve God's judgment, just as these people did. But God's not going to do it with a universal flood. He promised he wouldn't do that again. So even in the rainbow, we see God's mercy. 
So my friends, it's important for you to see God's mercy as a part of the Bible's basic picture of who God is. Again, he's displaying his character. He is merciful. By merciful, I hope you understand, I, I mean that God doesn't give us what we deserve. We, can't, we cannot and, and we should not just speak by the way of his holiness and his perfection and not also speak of his mercy. Okay? Yes, God is holy. God is love. He's those things. But God is far more than just that. He is also merciful. And so in these first chapters of Genesis, uh, these first chapters of Genesis present no hope for the human race if it wasn't for God's mercy. We would be doomed. (laughs) So the one, the Holy One here is also the merciful one. Please understand that. And you say, well, how can that be, by the way? Okay, I, I know some of you might be thinking this right now. How can that be? How can he do that? How can he be merciful when we are sinners? And the answer to that question is actually bringing us to the third point, which is this. Genesis also teaches us that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. The idea of sovereignty is he reigns supreme over all of his creation. So this truth should not surprise us. I mean, after all, God has made everything in his universe. He owns everything in his universe. And so the author of all, of course, would have the authority over all, just like if you made something, you would have the authority over it. And so God's made everything. He has authority over it. And in in the very third chapter of Genesis, we see God can judge what he has made, and he does. And if any doubt remains concerning his authority, all you have to do is go to Genesis chapter 7, and I want you to see this. Because look, look at Genesis 7, verse 21. If, any, if there's any doubt remaining in your mind about God's authority, Genesis 7 should end that doubt. Genesis 7, verse 21 says, And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. <clears throat> so what should we learn from this story? Well, we should learn a lot, but first we should learn that we cannot arrogantly ignore God and His claims on our life. After all, God is holy. And by holiness, I hope you understand, I mean that He's unique, He's distinct, He is separate from His creation. There's nothing else like Him. He's holy. He's committed to vindicating His name by judging sin. That's one thing you can learn from Genesis. Number two, that if God has made promises to us or to anybody, you can be certain that God is powerful enough as well as has the authority to carry out His promise. Doesn't He? You've seen that. You've experienced that in your own life, I hope. God makes promises. He keeps all of His promises. So what should be our response to these glorious truths of who God is and His character? Well, in two words, I'll put it this way. Obedience 
faith. Obedience and faith is always the response to God's character here. We need to believe God's words. After all, if He says it, we we should believe it because hopefully you know who He is. And we should obey Him. By the way, early on, you think about this, Adam and Eve failed to believe and obey God, didn't they? they? They doubted God's word that God had told them. And by the way, so does Cain. Adam and Eve's son Cain, he did the same. And so do the people of Noah's day. They re- refused to believe God's word. And look at chapter 6. I want you to see a good example of this in chapter 6. Noah, by God's grace, was a counterexample to, to his culture of his day. He was a counterexample. He really stuck out of the crowd. And so when you read chapter 6 and 7, you should notice Noah's righteousness is highlighted here. Look at chapter 6, verse 9, which says, chapter 6, verse 9, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So he's doing all that God commanded him. That's showing he is righteous. He has a right standing before God. Now look at chapter 7, verse 5. Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about Noah and his character, but that we do know. He did all that God commanded him. What a good example. And by the way, your life should be similar to Noah's. Now, I don't, I don't mean in the fact, go and build an ark, <laughs> okay? But he, he, was, he was righteous. Your life ought to look different from the culture around you, just as Noah's did. So my question for you is this. How could Noah live in a comparatively righteous way? How could he? Uh, well, some would say, well, he's just better than other people. No, just like you and me. No, that's not it. Noah simply believed the promises that God had made to him. And what's recorded in Scripture is not a lot, but what we do have, Noah believed that. He responded to God's Word by having faith in God Himself and in His words. He trusted God's words because he believed those were true and should be obeyed. We just read, he obeyed all that God commanded him. God says that several times. So Noah assumed that God was telling the truth. So why did he believe in God then? He didn't have the Bible. It's amazing. And that's why Noah's mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the the Hall of Faith. Why else would a guy work on a huge, massive boat when nobody had ever seen a, a flood, nobody had seen rain before, He works on this thing for 120 years when nobody had seen rain. If there was a, you know, in an insane asylum, a special hospital for mental patients, I'm sure they would have come with those nice white coats and tied him up and taken him away. By the way, this is what Hebrews 11 says about Noah. Hebrews 11, verse 7, it says, By faith Noah... 
being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Notice, how does the right standing with God come? Look what it says, comes by faith. Because Hebrews 11 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. So a question for you. What is the most crucial event in the Bible between the fall of Adam and the birth of Christ? You ever thought about that? The fall of Adam, Genesis 3, and the birth of Christ, Matthew 1. The answer to that question is found in chapter 12. That may surprise you. But in Genesis 12, the Lord calls Abram. And this call sets off the story of the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible would not make sense without Genesis 12 and the call of Abram. And again, here we have the camera, this huge zoom lens on a camera, zooms in on this one family line. By the way, this was not an impressive man to pick out. Abram was just your normal, nomadic, desert guy living in a tent. He was an idol worshiper. He was a heathen. There was nothing significant about him. God picks him out of the crowd and chooses to make special people from him. And so in the second section of Genesis, we're going to see Again, God displays his character, but in this section, he's not doing it in creation. He's doing it through his special people, starting in Genesis 12. And so again, we, we learn these same lessons. Even in the second part of Genesis, we see that Genesis is teaching us that God is holy and judges sin. So look at chapter 19, Genesis 19. By the way, nowhere do God's holiness and the condemnation of sin appear more vividly than, than here, I think. The second part of Genesis, and particularly in the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were wicked cities, very much like many of the cities that we have today, sadly. Sin is flaunted. Sin is approved of. Even the politicians are out there approving of our sin in public these days. We need to take warning because we're not far from Sodom and Gomorrah. But look what God says. And look what God does to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Look at verse 24. Genesis 19, verse 24. <clears throat> Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. In other words, it was destroyed. God destroyed those cities. Now, some people would say, hey, that's not fair. I don't like this God of the Old Testament because he's just destroying things. 
He's mean. He's nasty. Well, according to the Bible, God is the one who makes the rules. You don't get to make the rules. You're not the one who determines what is fair. Okay? By the way, you should be thankful for that. Because God's the one who determines what's fair. And He is good. Whereas we're not good. God is the one who makes the rules. And so as we stand before the Creator of the universe, you have to recognize you have no ultimate rights. The one who creates has the authority and the ability to destroy. And He does. But God is holy and God judges sin. But again, as just in the first part, whenever you see God's judgment, look for His mercy. Look for His mercy. Because God is merciful. And Genesis teaches us that even in this very context here in Genesis 19. Look at verse 16. We have, an, we have an example, an instance. In the midst of a terrible judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord is merciful to this man named Lot. Did Lot deserve God's mercy? No. No, he didn't deserve God's mercy. His family didn't deserve God's mercy, but look what God does. Genesis 19, verse 16. Verse 16. But he lingered, it says. Lot lingered in verse 16. So the men, these angels, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Look at verse 29. Look at verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Remember, Lot was a nephew of Abraham. God was keeping his promises, even though Lot and his family didn't deserve God's mercy. Well, another example could be clearly seen in Genesis 38. Look at Genesis 38. Here we see God's redeeming grace. You say, well, what is the context of Genesis 38? Well, actually, we're not going to... It's a huge, long story. So let me explain Genesis 38 to you. Here we see a man by the name of Judah. Of course, Judah ends up being like the patriarch of the tribe of Judah. And from the tribe of Judah comes Jesus. Of all the tribes, I mean, they're all messed up. Those guys are all messed up, okay? But Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. And we we see God's redeeming grace. This guy was immoral with his daughter-in-law. And it's not a wonderful story. But God's not trying to hide the ugliness of sin here and his mercy. God was gracious and he ends up redeeming the outcome of this horrible story. And you can actually read the outcome of that story in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, because what, what comes out of this is the promised seed of Abraham. And you can read about Judah's daughter-in-law in Matthew 1, verse 3. She is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And so their union was one of several sinful encounters, which, of course, Jesus comes from. We eventually come. Not at this time, but eventually. And by the way, it's, it's not that Judah's actions were okay. <laughs> All right? God is not trying to say, this is good. This is wonderful. No, the, they, it was clearly sinful. And even today we got laws against this, don't we? 
But God was using this. Again, he's displaying his mercy and his grace, and he's taking a horrible situation, uh, messed up lives, and he's working through this, displaying his glory, and he's doing it for himself as well as our good. Because we got Jesus from this, eventually. Well, number three, so not only do we see God's condemnation of sin, we saw God's mercy, but number three, Genesis, again, teaches us that God is sovereign. Throughout these chapters, 12 through 50, God is sovereignly working. He's reigning over His creation. And, and in this case, remember, He's doing it through the family line of Abraham. Uh, we, we could just see it in God choosing Abraham to start with. God chose Abraham. He didn't choose his brother. God ends up choosing Isaac, not his brother. God ends up choosing Jacob, not his older brother, which, by the way, goes against the culture of that day. God was continually choosing whom he wanted to put his blessing on. Another example is when God actually prohibited King Abimelech from acting out his affection toward Abraham's wife. You can read that in look at Genesis 20. Again, God's in control of all this. Even though Abraham's being a coward and not, he's not totally telling all the whole picture here. He wasn't willing to admit that Sarah was his wife. But look, look at Genesis 20, verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, this is King Abimelech, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. So who's in charge? Who's sovereign here? God is. God was sovereign, yet again. Notice what the sovereign God tells Abram years before this actually took place. Look at Genesis 15. This should not have surprised Abraham. Because look what God says in Genesis 15, verse 13. <clears throat> Genesis 15, verse 13 says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's the slavery years in Egypt. But, God says, verse 14, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. <laughs> wow, did God keep his promise or what? I mean, the Egyptians were handing you know, their, their gold and, and all their other precious possessions. Man, they had, they had so much. They left Egypt like basically wealthy. So to find out if God was accurate, then you have to go to the book of Exodus, the second book in your Bible, and of course you see that God's promises did come true. If you want to witness God's sovereign rule, uh, some of my favorite chapters is all about Joseph. Well, predominantly about Joseph, the human part of it anyway. So that's in Genesis 37 to the end. In those chapters, you see how God controls the future. You see God planned to let Joseph irritate his brothers. <laughs> yes, they were irritated. And Joseph was annoying, wasn't he? He was very annoying. And so his brothers, like brothers do, got so annoyed that some of them wanted to kill Joseph. 
But fortunately they didn't, because again, God was sovereign. They put them in a, in a hole in the ground, and they sold them into slavery. Joseph goes off to Egypt. He is sold into Pharaoh, or, or Potiphar's house. Uh, Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph so that Joseph could get thrown in prison. In prison, Joseph interprets dreams so that Joseph would be distinguished between the king of Egypt, who is Pharaoh, and eventually he becomes second in power of the greatest nation on the earth at that time. Is that all an accident? Is that a happenstance or whatever you want to call it? Of course not. God is sovereign over all of that. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Question, do you see how carefully God has planned all of Genesis 37 to 50? It's, it's amazing. God's done everything from the tiniest little stuff to the grandest stuff happening in, in, in order to display His glory. He's displaying His character. And I think Joseph was able to see that. And if you don't believe that Joseph was able to see that, look at Genesis 50. Look at Genesis 50. It's a clear example that Joseph knew who was in charge, who was overseeing everything that happened in his life. And by the way, that includes evil. Even evil God uses to accomplish his purposes. So, and Joseph acknowledges that in Genesis 15, 50, chapter 50, verse 18. Verse 18, it says, His brothers also came and fell down before him, and said, Behold, we are your servants. So the same guys who sold Joseph into slavery are now bowing before him. By the way, they're fulfilling the very dreams, the annoying dreams that Joseph told them. Now look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Wow. There is a guy who is resting in the sovereignty of God. He knows he is, he is put there by God. And that's, that is a great place to be, by the way. So what should be our response to these glorious truths of God's character? That God condemns sin, He judges sin, but He's also merciful, and He is sovereign in all of this. What should be our response? The same one as the first 11 chapters, it's obedience and faith. In other words, we're to trust this God who is sovereign. And as far as I'm concerned, the best example we can look at in Genesis, and maybe even the entire Bible, is Abraham. He responded to God with obedience and faith. Which is why, by the way, he's mentioned in Romans 4, and he's also mentioned in Hebrews 11 again. By the way, nowhere does justification by faith alone appear as clearly as it does in the account of Abraham's life. Justification by faith alone. In other words, he had this right standing before God. And it wasn't based on works. It was based on his belief his faith and his trust in God. And it's interesting, even the New Testament writers use Abraham as the example of this multiple times. That he was justified, he was, 
He had this right standing and position with God based on his faith alone. Uh, Not only do you see it in Romans 4, you see it in Galatians chapter 3. And you say, well, how do I know that that's true? Well, look at Genesis 15. Look at Genesis chapter 15. Because Genesis 15 is quoted in Romans. Genesis is quoted in Galatians chapter 3 as well. But look at Genesis 15, verse 6. Look at verse 6. Pretty clear, because verse 6 says, He, that's Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So how did Abraham become a Christian? Jesus hadn't even been born yet. Jesus hadn't come to die. He wasn't buried. He didn't rise from the grave. How can that even be? Well, by faith. That's how everyone is saved. You and I are saved by looking back to Jesus. Abraham looked forward to Jesus. So it's, it's all the same. It's faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's how anybody is saved. So the response has to be obedience and faith. So according to New Testament usage, this is one of the most important uses in the uh, important verses, I should say, in the Old Testament. It's used several times. It's quoted in your New Testament. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, I won't uh, go into all those various cross-references. You can read those. If you have the cross-references in your Bible, I suggest you go back this afternoon and look at all those cross-references. But look what Hebrews 11 says. I mean, you say, how could he do this? <laughs> Where did this incredible faith come from? Where did it come from? Well, Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 17, talks about Abraham, and it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, what does it say? Look at this. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's incredible faith, isn't it? Talk about believing God's promises. Even to the point he believed God would raise his son from the dead if that's what God chose to do. And that was Abraham's faith. It's not because he's some special dude and we're not. No, he's just a normal guy like you and me. He trusted God so much that if God chose to slay his son, that he could obey, and he did. He proceeded to obey knowing that God would be faithful in raising up his son. He knew that the one who created the world, the one who made life, could give life to his son again. And that's a good example to us. The great example of knowing God. It's a, it's a good example of taking God at his word, believing, trusting what God says. By the way, that is the faith that alone saves. You are not saved by works. Nowhere does it say that Abraham was saved by works. The Bible nowhere says that. He was saved by his faith alone. So I want to conclude by giving just a few general comments here. As as we just kind of get the big picture of Genesis, God seems to be working through weak beginnings. I'm very encouraged by this. I hope you are too. 
truly it's amazing that God chose to bless the world through uh, a weak man. Through the family of just one Middle Eastern nomad by the name of Abraham. (laughs) God didn't begin his great plan of redemption through incredible civilizations. He could have chose China or India or Egypt. Incredible civilizations, but he didn't do that. Instead, he begins it with just a little migrant family. And out of that migrant family, he chose a man by the name of Abraham. God's beginnings with this family are very insecure, by the way. Very insecure. Read Genesis, and you'll find that in Genesis, only three women are described as barren. In other words, by barren, they could not have children. In fact, it says God had had stopped their wombs from giving birth to children. Do you want to guess whose family line those three women belong to? All three of them belong to the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Genesis 11 mentions Sarah, Abraham's wife, was barren. Genesis 25, Rebekah, Isaac's wife, was barren. Genesis 29, Rachel, Jacob's wife, was barren. You see the line? The thin line there. The Messiah could have been stopped, but he wasn't, because God was going to keep his promises. Do you sense that God's up to something as you read that? I certainly do. God wants to make a point. God is displaying his character to to the world. God wanted to make it clear that the promises that he made to Abraham, as well as descendants, did not depend on them. They were weak. They were insignificant. The the promises only depended on God. God is not going to share his glory with another. He said that in other portions of the Bible. So here's a question for you to ponder. Have you realized that God is trustworthy? And that should be, he should be utterly obeyed in all areas of life. Have you realized that any of the prosperity that you have comes from God? Your children, your grandchildren comes from God. Your health comes from God. Your position in life comes from God. Just to name a few things. Okay, God gives you what you have. Your blessings are not, are not coming from you. They're given to you by a loving God. It is not your amazing mental ability that has gotten you where you are now. Genesis was written to teach us these truths as well as others. Genesis is a book of great contrast as well. It begins with great power in chapter 1. There's universal scope. God creating the entire universe. There's hope of life. Chapter 1, verse 1, just is an amazing verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But have you ever noticed how the book of Genesis ends? It starts with one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, but this book ends on a very, very, very low note. Look at chapter 50. Chapter 50. Genesis 1-1 is about as high as you can get. Genesis 50, verse 26, is about as low as you can get. Because it says, So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him 
and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Why would God end the book of beginnings with a coffin? You ever thought about that? He ends with death and a coffin. I don't know why God does everything that he does, but I can't help but uh, wonder if Satan is looking at, at, at all of this thinking, ha ha, I've won. No, he hadn't won, had he? Satan's rebellion against God's creation appears to have succeeded, right? I've killed another one of the patriarchs. <laughs> the patriarch's dead. He's in a coffin, and he's not in the promised land. Well, death has touched all of Adam's children, hasn't it? That's what God said would happen. The wages of sin is death. We have the last hero in the book of Genesis by the name of Joseph. He's faded off the scene. He's dead. He's gone. And the book that begins with creation is ending with a coffin. But there is one glimmer of hope here, isn't there? Where's the coffin? Where's the coffin? It's in the country of Egypt. It's in Egypt, the mightiest nation on the earth at that time. Does God know what he's doing or what? God knew exactly what he was doing. God knew where to plant his seed for his purposes so that this this little insignificant family could grow to be a nation. And they did. When they walked out of Egypt, some have said they were over two million strong. God knew where to plant his seed for his purposes. And, And when you read the book of Exodus, you discover what God is doing. The stage was set for this this amazing drama, which they recently made a movie out of it, didn't they? (laughs) Because God's drama is awesome. And of course, the movies can't even do God's drama justice. But we have God's great drama of redemption being played out where he's showing the whole world that that, uh, no nation on the earth is more powerful than he is. He humbled the greatest nation on earth. He crushed them. And Egypt has never been the same since those ten plagues, have they? So Genesis is the book of beginnings. But the book of beginnings ends. But God's business wasn't done yet. God's business is not done. It it is continuing. He has continued to show himself sovereign. And by the way, we can thank God that he is not finished yet. Because, boy, that would be a horrible way to end the Bible, wouldn't it? there's hope here because the coffin's in Egypt, but I'm glad the Bible doesn't end there. I'm so glad. He has a lot more work that he is going to accomplish. And so what should be our response? My friends, what's the response? Trust and obey. You know the song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's certainly true. We must trust and obey. Why? Because God is trustworthy. He's sovereign. He's merciful. He condemns sin. That's who God is. And my friends, I exhort you to study the book of Genesis to find this this God who is displaying His character to the nations. And trust and obey because He is worthy and trustworthy.